I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Discovering new stories of Utah's pioneers. No matter where you're from or what background, culture, race, the same tears are shed. We're all connecting to these heroes that came before us and want to fill in the gaps of the history. Mary Richards celebrates lesser-known stories of Utah pioneers, from early black settlers to female politicians leading the voting movement. Mary and her guests explore 175 years of progress on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. On July 22nd, 2022, a new monument honoring pioneers was unveiled and dedicated at This is the Place Heritage Park in Salt Lake City. And it is the first monument that honors our African-American pioneers who came in 1847. On the 175th anniversary of the day when Green Flake drove the first wagon into Immigration Canyon with brothers Hark Wales and Oscar Smith in the same group, a monument to those three and Jane Manning James, who arrived later in 1847, was unveiled. On that day, President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said this. When you start thinking about pioneers and start connecting it to who they really were, this is a very important thing we're doing. In my judgment, I don't think we'll ever stop talking about those who blazed the trail and made it easier for us. I'm joined by writer and director Mally Jr. Bonner. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about that day in July. Oh, my goodness. It was an emotional day. I thought I got all my cries out beforehand, but oh, it was a day I'll never, ever forget. The spirit there at the park was just incredible. You could just feel it. So many people were there. So many people were involved in getting to that point. Talk a little bit about the journey to have this new monument dedicated and unveiled. Yes. I mean, because it, it began with the film. I wrote and directed this film. His name is Green Flake. And it follows the lives of free and enslaved black pioneers that came through on that trek. And it wasn't until after the film did well and won awards, I was like, oh, my goodness, great. Let's take a picture by the monuments because I live in California and I know Utah loves its monuments. And so I was I just assumed that there were already established monuments of these black pioneers and there weren't. And so that's when I realized that that's what this film was all about. It was about starting to tell the stories that many have forgotten over the years. This is exactly what this hour is about. It's about telling those stories because that importance of connecting with that history of with that heritage and that past. What's interesting is I think in today's world, it's emotionally taxing for us. You know, everyone is so exhausted. It's been hard, right? And to be able to look to our past and know that there are people that came before us that endured unimaginable trials and hardships, it allows me to know that I can overcome what's going on in my life. So looking to them, I draw strength from them. Yes. And that joint heritage, those of all different backgrounds, and we can all draw strength from that together. Yes. I love that you said that because like you described in the beginning, uh, the monument, it's called the Pioneers of 1847. And so it doesn't say black pioneers intentionally because 
we have to get to the point to where when we talk about a pioneer, it could be a black pioneer, a white pioneer, a woman, a man. It could be any one of us. And so I just love that they're integrated into the park the way it should be. Yeah. Tell me more about Greenflake for those who are listening and they say, I think I've heard that name or I'm learning more about him. Let's talk about him. Yes. Greenflake was an African-American that was born into enslavement and he baptized into the church at an early age, a young teen. And at the age of 19, he was assigned to be a part of the advance team. So you think of the Vanguard company, he was a part of that. And ahead of that Vanguard company was the advance team that came through the valley on July 22nd, uh, led by Orson Pratt. And Green Flake is an incredible young man because, I mean, when I said 19, I automatically think of missionaries. And a lot of us are connected to missionaries. We think of our brothers, sisters, children, to know that this young man did the unimaginable. I draw strength from him, uh, knowing what he endured. Yeah. This is a story that now we can tell our children on Pioneer Day, any day, really, as we look back at our heritage, we can say, and there's Green Flake. Now we see him in the full picture. Whereas perhaps before it maybe had gotten lost over the years or not told fully. Yeah. And what about working with the descendants of Green Flake and these incredible pioneers? Yes. So a lot of people don't know that there's descendants of Green Flake that are throughout the whole valley, not just Green Flake, but the black pioneers that came through free and enslaved. And they were a big part of this, a big part of me gathering history and pass down stories. And so for them to allow us for me personally, to attach to their family history was so special, especially with African-Americans. It's hard to trace your ancestry. My great-grandfather was enslaved, and it ends there for me. So to be able to connect to Green Flake means so much. Yes. Since that day in July, with the dedication of the monument, what have you then learned? It didn't, you're, this didn't end that, that day. Like, well, now we have our monument and we can move on. Tell me about since then, what you've learned, what people have been discussing with you, what your kind of hopes are since then. Like you said, it did not end at the dedication. It almost was a new beginning. So uh, now my focus is the priesthood. Because those are the questions. When people see the movie, and if you watch His Name is Green Flake, you'll learn a little bit about the early black priesthood holders in the 1800s. And a lot of people thought, wait, I thought it was 1978. And so following Elijah Abel's life, because he received the priesthood in 1836, it kind of unravels the history of the priesthood and how that all happened. And I've, since the dedication, taken this story of Green Flake and black pioneers over to Africa and to Brazil We've done screenings for over 150 wards in Africa so far. And it's incredible that no matter where I am, Brazil, here in Salt Lake City or in Ghana, the same questions are asked, you know, and so the same tears are shed, same questions are asked. So no matter where you're from or what background, culture, race, we're all connecting to these heroes that came before us and want to fill in the gaps of the history. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those other heroes, too. I mentioned in the beginning those other names that we are now giving them that credit they deserve. Hark Wales and Oscar Smith and Jane Manning James. All three of them incredible, incredible human beings. I mean, when you talk about Jane Manning James, she trekked to Nauvoo on foot 800 miles before making that pioneer trek. She's incredible. She was incredibly close with the uh, Smith family. She lived with Joseph Smith in the home her and Emma were very close. And then you have Oscar and Hark, and they were brothers of Martha. Uh, Martha is the wife of Green Flake. So I'm kind of giving you a little bit of family history. So Green Flake ended up marrying the sister of Hark and Oscar, uh, which is incredible. So they're all family. And all three of them, Hark, Oscar, and Green, were a part of that same advanced team. Yeah. 
I just think about the courage and the fortitude and the humility. So many words I'm trying to fill in to help broaden my own understanding of them crossing the plains and and being part of that company. I think about how we are talking about Utah pioneers, but this connects to the greater history of Utah, of the Intermountain West, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and of the world, really. You've been going to Brazil and Africa, yeah. and and it really is our shared world history, too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, it, what's interesting is the link of enslavement is kind of what's linking us all together, because the slave trade, it took over the world. And, of course, it came into America, and it permeated our own faith. And so... For us to be able to learn more about the details of some of the pioneers that really didn't have a place to speak for themselves back then. But now as we're uncovering these stories, we get to celebrate them in a way that they've never been celebrated. So those of us here listening in Utah and Salt Lake City can go see the monument, can go physically connect with place. I think there's a purpose and there's a power in place, right? Oh, absolutely. In a place and then having representation just to be able to go and see that there were black pioneers. It's one thing to hear the stories or even hear this message over the air, but to go and witness it. it I, I didn't realize how important that was until it was unveiled. And then I boohooed like a baby and tried to read my words, which was impossible. But it was just an incredible, incredible moment. Those who can't go in person, they might live farther away. They're hearing this in a different state or in a different country even. What would you suggest for them to learn more? So this is, I mean, here's the truth of it. In the beginning, when I made the film, I had a screening with the church history department. And after the film, we sat and we talked and we realized that there needs to be more on church websites so that people don't feel like they have to be a historian to figure it out. And since then, it's gotten so much better. Like, I mean, overload information on the church website. So start there. I always feel like if you're going to learn our history, learn from us first. And so start at churchofjesuschrist.org and then let it snowball. And there's books and, and all kinds of places you can go, but you'll know where to go when you start there. Yes. I love that you brought that up because this has been one of my key things as a journalist is find the right sources and grow from there. Exactly. And contemporary sources are so crucial and our historians at the church history department. And we can also say too these great resources with Paul Reeve, Robert Birch, Century of Black Mormons. You're exactly right. There's so much out there to learn and grow and learn from and people doing such great work in these efforts to learn more and to find those records and to tell these stories. Can we give a little spoiler on anything you're working on next? You know, what's interesting is my background is in music, but over the last four years, they said, I, I think you're going to catch the bug. And it's true. I have caught the bug and making films is something that I have to do. And so right now I'm working on uh, writing the script of Elijah Abel. So telling his story and it will be the same thing. We're going to tell his story and make sure everybody hears about it and has Q&As afterwards. And then the support that was garnered from the film will go towards building something beautiful to tell the story of the priesthood. And I want people to know that when you when we're learning about Elijah Abel and Green Flake and Jane Manning James, these are people that were celebrated back then. Back then, Green Flake was speaking alongside church leaders at Pioneer Day celebrations. 
a seat was held on the front row for Jane Manning James. And so that was lost and we're just bringing it back. Where can people view your film? I appreciate you asking that question. So if you go to Deseret Book online or in the store, that's where you can get the movie. Deseret was just a big part of making sure that this film happened and make sure that it gets into the hands of every single home. It's so important. It kind of is the launching pad uh, to this history. Excellent. We can't wait for your next film as well. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) Thank you so much, writer and director Mally Jr. Bonner, for joining me. Thank you. Coming up next, we'll talk more about some of the amazing stories of Utah women and the pioneers in those fields. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour, KSL celebrates the stories of Utah's lesser-known pioneers in 175 years of progress. Here's Mary Richards on KSL News Radio. Thank you for joining me this hour. I'm Mary Richards. I now write for the Church News, and I'm grateful to be back here on KSL News Radio talking about these stories of Utah pioneers this hour with you. We're going to talk about some of the women pioneers and some of these names you really ought to know. And with that, we have here in studio. Better Days Education Director Tiffany Green and the Historical Director Rebecca Clark, who is also the co-author of the book Thinking Women, A Timeline of Suffrage in Utah. And welcome, Tiffany and Rebecca. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. People have heard that phrase, Better Days. Talk about what that's all about. So our organization is an educational nonprofit that really specializes in focusing on Utah women's history and getting that talked about more openly in classrooms and in the community with the idea that as we come to know more about our past and women's leadership in the past, that it makes Utah a better place for women and for everyone in the future. We learn from that and those stories and where we came from. There's such a power in that connection, isn't there? Absolutely. We have this rich and complex often and diverse history of women's leadership here in Utah. And that is very empowering for us today and inspiring for us to build on that legacy. So hopefully more people are aware of this, but it really is so exciting to talk about that history of suffrage, the leadership from the Mountain West and from Utah on these issues of early women's suffrage. You want to talk about that, Tiffany? Utah had the distinction of being the first place where women voted under an equal suffrage law. That happened way back in 1870, decades before most women in the country had access to the ballot box. So Utah granted equal suffrage to its female citizens as early as 1870. But then for the next preceding decades, there was a lot of tumult about continuing having access to that ballot box, to that voting power. And by the late 1880s, that voting right had been stripped away by the U.S. Congress. And so Utah women had to rally together to get that right reinstated with statehood in 1896, which Mm -hmm. they successfully did. So why was that? Why did Utah lead the way in that? There's a couple reasons, I think. 
like Rebecca stated, it's rich and complex history that we don't have time to get into the whole thing today. But I think that there was already a system of female leadership here in the Utah Territory at the time with the LDS Church that really played an important role. Women had voices that were heard already in communities. There was a lot of support from male leadership. And I think that there was a lot of, well, let's try it out and just see how it goes. A lot of national sentiment that's like, well, it's in the West. If it, if it doesn't work out, it's in the West. It's okay, right? And Utahns took that and played it to their advantage. They weren't just inactive players, right? There wasn't just something that was happening to them. They took an active role in expanding their voting rights. Mm. What are some of the names of Utah women during that time we ought to know? Well, there's so many. It's hard to narrow down. Um, One of my favorite women, in fact, so much so that I named my youngest daughter after her, is Emmeline B. Wells. So Emmeline became one of Utah's really preeminent suffragists. She worked for decades for women's suffrage rights and just women's equality across the board. She was the editor for over 40 years of the Women's Exponent, which was a woman-run newspaper that really is this rich resource for us today to learn these stories of these women because they were reporting not only on what was happening here in Utah, but what was happening for women's rights around the whole world and throughout the nation. And so it really was one of the longest standing pro-suffrage newspapers in the nation. Mm -hmm. And Emmeline was close companions and friends with Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony actually bequeathed one of her six gold rings to Emmeline upon Susan's death. Wow. I did not know this. And I knew those names, but to know more about them, do you feel like knowing them and who they were and reading their writings, how does that help you today? Well, one of the things I love about Emmeline is just the sheer amount of work she was doing personally, professionally, and on behalf of women. When I first learned about her and was researching in her journals way back in college when I first discovered the story, it was really inspiring to me to see women who were really pursuing their passions in different ways. For Emmeline, she was a writer, a poet, um, and also really invested in women's experience and women's equality. And so she she used that. And we see that across the board as we have researched throughout Utah's history of women like Hannah Kaepa, who back in 1898, so fast forwarding a little bit, she came here from Hawaii. She was a Native Hawaiian. And after Hawaii was annexed to the United States, Native Hawaiians lost their right to vote. And many of them, many Latter-day Saint Hawaiians, moved here to Utah, settled in the Yosepa area. And Hannah had the opportunity as a leader in that community and also as a leader among women here in Utah. She went with a group, the delegation, to the National Council of Women Convention and the National Suffrage Convention in Washington, D.C. in 1898 and stood on the platform and advocated for not only women's voting rights, but specifically the voting rights of Native Hawaiians. And she was able to put a lay over Susan B. Anthony's neck and stand as an advocate for Native Hawaiians, but also as an emblem of sort of the diversity within Utah women and the work they were doing within their own communities to show how women's voices being part of those decisions really made a difference across the board. Yeah. And isn't that true about Utah, the diversity here from the beginning, that there have been people from all over who have come here and then let's claim them as those pioneers. You know what I mean? 
yeah, we're not called Crossroads of the West for no reason, right? There's mm-hmm. there's truth to that. And there's also geographic diversity when we tell this story of suffrage. It wasn't just women in Salt Lake who were interested in this issue. Across the Utah Territory, all the way down in Bluff, Utah, the very southeastern corner, all the way up to Lake City by Bear Lake. We have all corners of the state. We have these suffrage organizations of women who organized and petitioned their local leaders and held rallies and balls and parades to get this right to vote reinstated. Yeah. And of course, I can't help but immediately bring up, when I think about Better Days, I think about all your work helping elevate the voice and example of Martha Hughes Cannon. So who wants to talk about her a little bit? (laughs) We both do. do. She's so (laughs) wonderful, right? So Martha Hughes Cannon, we've been focusing a lot on her this year because Utah will soon be installing a statue of Martha Hughes Cannon at the U.S. State Capitol in Statuary Hall, where each state gets two statues to represent them. And it's really exciting to have been a part of that process. And so we've been sharing a traveling exhibit about Martha all throughout the state to tell her story because Martha was very exceptional in many ways for her time. She was a doctor. She received four degrees by the time she was 25. And this is in the 1800s when women were often not going on to pursue further education. And she was a suffrage advocate, spoke in front of U.S. Congress, advocating for a federal suffrage amendment. And she was the first female state senator Mm -hmm. in the nation. Yeah, And we could talk a little about her election there in a bit. But she was exceptional in all these ways, but she was also really representative of so many of the women here in Utah in her time and beyond, right, where they were using their talents and using their passions and the things that they were interested in to then make their community around them better. And we see that as the running theme through all the women that we have researched. And how did that election go? You just alluded to that. You want to bring that up, Tiffany? Well, it was a, a crowded field in 1896 when that election took place, and there were so many on the Republican ticket, Martha was on the Democratic ticket. Her husband, Angus, was on the Republican ticket for the same seat, and she was victorious over her her husband, Angus. Mm-hmm. Newspapers reported at the time that Martha Hughes Cannon was the better man for the job. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine being at the dinner table discussions during that election? <laughs> oh, my goodness, for sure. What about then, you mentioned her medical training. That's something, too, that comes up in our history as we look at women in Utah, the advances they made, and it seemed to be so far ahead of their time to get that medical training and come back and help others, right? Absolutely. At the time... Women were encouraged to go and get this secondary education, that's how we would refer to it today, to get this training so that they could come back and take care of these communities here in the territory and the state. And Martha Hughes Cannon was just one of many young women who went and trained as doctors and nurses and then came back to start hospitals like the Deseret Hospital here. We had women that went back and had nursing training and came back and did nursing courses again throughout the state from north to south, east to west in small towns. These women were training other women so that our health care needs could be met. One thing that I love about Martha is that as she was obtaining these medical degrees, she also obtained an elocution degree, a degree in public speaking, that she realized and had this vision, right, even then, as young as she was, that to really change things, she would need to have those skills as well. And I think that that was just a a precursor to her deciding to run for office, 
with the goal of really changing the public health laws at the time. And once she was in office as a state senator, she revolutionized public health here in Utah and established the State Board of Health and uh, her public health bill. We still have the benefits of that today. Oh, wow. Well, and they named the health building after her, the state. Yeah, there on North Temple. So you mentioned those women who went east to west, north to south. And I think of all of those names, all of those people who sacrificed their own time and really used their gifts to bless others. I see that history of Utah women. And I think I see that today, too, among Utah women, don't you? Absolutely. I think it's a universal quality that we can gain a lot of strength from learning in the past, but it's really easy to see it in the present as well. Yeah. One of the really interesting themes that emerges in this research as well is the collaboration between men and women. Uh, Here in Utah, particularly within that movement for early women's rights, that was a unique element. In most states, the fight for suffrage and women's rights became very adversarial between the men and the women. But for unique circumstances here in Utah, they had wide support for women's rights from both the men and women, particularly Latter-day Saint men and women initially. And then that expanded as women had the right to vote so early, 50 years before the 19th Amendment, and were so engaged in that political process. Really across the population, there was wide support uh, based on the experience of having women be engaged in the political process and seeing the benefits that that provided for the community at large. And so Utah then became this example for the rest of the nation who was debating about women's suffrage and making all sorts of dire predictions about what would happen if women started voting, right, and that the world would come to an end. And then Utah, men and women here were able to stand and advocate for the benefit of having women's voices in the decision-making process and women at the table. And we see that still today, the importance of that and the need for women to be really actively engaged in that process because it makes our community better for everyone. And it doesn't take away from men. It doesn't take away from others if you're uplifting women. I love how you said we have that example from our history of working together and uplifting each other Mm -hmm. and being on that same level in a way. And we're talking this hour about Utah pioneers. That's something we can learn today as well, right? Yeah, I mean, particularly with the early pioneers and the Latter-day Saint pioneers, kind of the initial impetus for that support really stems from that they saw their work within the women's rights movement as being part of the restoration of the church. And I think that that is a really inspiring and also instructive point that has come through as we've seen this, that the doctrine that they were learning at this time of individual divine potential for divinity and a unique perspective on Eve and her wisdom gave these women kind of feeling that they had an understanding that they could share about women's place. And it reframed their view of themselves as women. And I think also impacted how that partnership was viewed by both men and women. And so they really saw their work within the suffrage movement as being part of fulfilling the prophecy that Joseph Smith had made when he first established the Relief Society organization, the women's organization within the Latter-day Saint Church, he said, this is the beginning of better days for women. And leaders within the church since then have pointed back to the birthday of the Relief Society 
as being kind of the beginning of the modern women's movement. It was six years before Seneca Falls Convention. And so I think that we see that thread too, especially in those early years of of such widespread support. And then the rest of the population built on that. And we see women in all communities emerging as leaders within their circles of influence. And Tiffany, this legacy of women in Utah and these names and stories we've been talking about, Utah Women Pioneers, how does that affect you today? It helps me today feel a part of something that's been going on for generations. And that's actually a point I wanted to bring up today is that when we talk about women in the past, we don't want to say that these women just appeared from nothing to be great. Martha Hughes Cannon didn't just become who Martha Hughes Cannon was because she is exceptional. She was raised by a generation of females who taught her to be that way. And those women were also raised by generations of females. And then generations in the future looked to Martha Hughes Cannon and her peers, and they taught the younger people how to become the people that would be helpful and contribute to their society. So learning this history really, for me, integrates me into that fabric and makes it really meaningful for me to continue the work in however I can today in my community. And I hope that's the purpose from this whole hour, really, that our listeners will see themselves in these stories and connect with that heritage and history that comes before and then carry it on to the future. And for those who want to know more about this particular topic, go to their website, utahwomenshistory.org. My thanks to Better Days Education Director Tiffany Green and Historical Director Rebecca Clark for their time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up next, we'll talk about some of the innovators and inventors from Utah's pioneer history. Discovering new stories of Utah's pioneers. No matter where you're from or what background, culture, race, the same tears are shed. We're all connecting to these heroes that came before us and want to fill in the gaps of the history. Mary Richards celebrates lesser-known stories of Utah pioneers. From early black settlers to female politicians leading the voting movement, Mary and her guests explore 175 years of progress on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back to our discussion about Utah's pioneer heritage as we explore new stories and lesser-known names from our history, including the inventors and innovators. Who better to talk about this with me than Dr. Holly George, Senior State Historian with the Utah Division of State History and co-editor of Utah Historical Quarterly. Thank you for being here. It is so fun to see you, Mary. You too. For our listeners who don't know, we go back several years. Several years. (laughs) And Holly has always had such a passion for history. And that's what I loved about you is it's helped me then think, what more can I learn about those who came before us and how does that help Thank me today? You, and do you feel like that is something then in your work that you see when you're finding these stories, learning more and trying to share them with others? I bet that's just a passion of yours. It's a passion. It's a passion knowing about people and people have done so much good. They've done so much wrong, but everyday lives have enormous significance. Every person matters and every life can be learned from. And think about that, listeners in the car or wherever you are, that your life matters, that you are a person who matters. These stories we are talking about this hour about Utah pioneers. Talk about some of these people that you've kind of learned about as we've you know, had this on our minds leading yes. up to the special. Who would you like to start with? I would like to start with Ada Williams Quinn. 
Ada was a gal from Peterson, Utah, from Pioneer Stock, born in the 1870s. And after her children were grown, when she was in her late 40s, she decided to start a business. This was in 1926. She had $5. She had a pattern that she could do in her kitchen. And she went out and bought a bunch of fabric and started making aprons. And the significance there is that, you know, women were mostly wearing dresses around the house. And that was a bigger investment. So, of course, you need something to protect your dress. And also the idea of buying ready-made clothes was getting more uh, attractive. So Utah in the 1920s had a terrible economy. There was a depression in Utah then. And then, of course, we're headed into the Great Depression in these years. But she made a really smart choice. She was a smart woman. So she sews up this lot of aprons and sends her young son downtown Ogden to try to sell these to a store owner and succeeds. And so that gave her the confidence she needed. She kept making more aprons. She took another bunch downtown to Salt Lake to a department store and paced back and forth in front of the building before she got the gumption to go in. And he turned her down, but oh. <laughs> but bought more later. Okay. So Ada Quinn, she kept trying, she kept sewing, and she was an excellent seamstress. And soon she starts selling a lot of aprons because, again, it's really practical. You mm-hmm. need something to cover your clothes. I wear aprons constantly. Mm-hmm. Soon she moves from her kitchen to a shed in the backyard, and then soon she needs to get employees. Mm-hmm. And she used a factory in Ogden, and she made sure that there were amenities like a cloakroom and a lunchroom, a restroom, good lighting for her employees. And here's a part of the story I love that Ada Quinn, she wanted to hire widowed mothers and unwed mothers to give them a chance. Wow. And so she had a tendency to do that. And she gave people a good wage, even though it was the Great Depression. And she keeps building her business. She's got an eye for colors and and nice combinations. And she was always honest and forthright in her buying. And so she built good credit with fabric suppliers. She built a relationship with J.C. Penney Company, and she became the exclusive supplier of aprons to J.C. Penney Company. And soon her products were sold throughout the world. Wow. And one thing I love, she patented, I think it's like eight or 12 designs. And the patent process is really difficult. And drafting a pattern is really difficult. Mm-hmm. I know your mother-in-law is an excellent she seamstress. And I'm immediately thinking of her when you're yeah, saying this. Yeah, I was thinking of her driving down. And it, they're really difficult. Yes. And so Ada, you can see throughout the patent process her skills improving. Mm. And so she was a remarkable woman. In the early 40s, she ran for governor of Utah. She did not win. <laughs> she she knew she wasn't going to win, but she said she knew how to make jobs and she knew how to treat employees. And then just shortly after her husband died, the LDS church leadership tapped her to be on the General Welfare Committee mm. to teach Relief Society women clothing production. And so that was an important part of her life. As World War II came on, paradoxically, production for clothing needed to scale down. And she had the business sense to realize she couldn't scale into making wartime products. 
So she sold her business and then she died in the in the mid 40s. But what a remarkable woman. And one thing I want to say is I think today we know a lot about Ada Quinn because of another remarkable Utah woman, Audrey Godfrey, a local historian who just passed away and a really lovely woman. Her son is a historian at the church, Matt Godfrey. So we know about Ada because of Audrey. Oh, yes. What an incredible woman. And what lessons I'm thinking immediately to learn from her today of grit and Mm -hmm. fortitude Mm -hmm. and perseverance. She kept going in this patent process. Yes. I love that you said she knew how to treat employees. She knew how to be a boss and a good one. Uh huh. Interesting how if she'd won that race how more people would know her name today for governor. For governor. Her picture would be there at the state capitol. Yeah. Another name that some people might recognize but maybe not know too much about is Harvey Fletcher. Harvey Fletcher. He was a brilliant physicist and an authority in acoustical engineering. Here in this studio right now with all of this remarkable equipment owes a great deal to Harvey Fletcher. Mm. He was a Provo boy, also pioneer stock. And I found an oral history of him describing his first memory from school was sitting with a dunce cap Mm. and being laughed at by the other children. Not good. This boy, people say he should have earned a Nobel Prize. So I want kids to take heart from that. Yeah. And he, he, also from this oral history, as a student at BYU, the BY, he (laughs) took a physics class and failed. And he said, okay, I'm going to show that fellow. And he took it again and did wonderfully. And he kept excelling, kept excelling, and realized he had a great talent for it. He went to the University of Chicago and worked with Robert Millikan, the famous physicist, and then back to BYU and finally on to Bell Laboratories. If you listen to stereo recordings, you like movies, hearing aids, artificial larynx, all these things owe to Harvey Fletcher. From Provo, he came back, founded the College of Engineering at BYU. So a well-known man throughout the world and a Utah boy. I love that. Our listeners can now say, I know a little bit more about Harvey Fletcher. I've seen that name. I've heard that name. And thanks to him, we have all these things that we take for granted. All these things. They're listening right now on a radio. Perfect. We're so grateful to him for that. And this last example is one who's a little more recent. Peter Paul Preer. Peter Paul Preer was a violin maker. He died in 2015. He was born in the 1940s in Germany. His father died in the war, I believe. And then his mother took the three children out of what would become East Germany. He studied violin making in Germany, came to Utah in, I believe, 1960, and opened a violin shop. This was a time when expensive, you know, the great name violins like Stradivarius or Guarneri, you know, supply and demand issue. They're too expensive. And so he began making beautiful violins. He opens this shop in Salt Lake City and begins having students want to come to him. And let me read this to you. He says, at first, the student turnover was devastating. Our dropout rate ran to 80%, but I was determined to see it through. So he began taking on more and more students. He opened the first violin school in the United States. He apparently just had this wonderful ability with students to inspire them, to teach them the craft, and to do it in an exacting and wonderful kind fashion. He's a legend in violin making. Can I mention why I brought up Peter Paul Preer? My mother was a violin teacher and an orchestra teacher, and she said, why don't you talk about Peter Paul Preer? Mm -hmm. All throughout my childhood, I heard about him, 
And there's that wonderful mural downtown on the side of the building, the Violin Making School of America. So he is a local favorite also. Mm-hmm. I am so inspired by his story that his mother is a widow. He's an immigrant to the United States. He comes here and starts a violin school in America. It seems so old world and old school, but he knew that there was a a desire for it. And he gets these students who have founded shops throughout the United States and really energize this. He opened a recital hall downtown also for students that my niece that you know did a, did a recital at it, he's wonderful what a wonderful way to energize music and use his craft he served three missions for the church who was active throughout his life had you know had a family who became also involved in violin making some of his violins have been played by people like Yehudi Menuhin mm. and Daniel Heifetz so really just a beautiful story that is so beautiful i Think again of how much I can learn from his life and using his time and talents in that way to bless others is something that I take away from that. Why do you think so many inventors and innovators have come from Utah or been born, raised here, that kind of thing? Could give you a long answer. (laughs) You know, I, I think these three particular people had a lot of determination. They had integrity and they worked hard. I think the state as a whole, there are other things that have contributed to the innovation. A lot of infrastructure from World War II and the universities make a big difference. But I think these three particular people personally showed a lot of willpower and smarts and and willingness to work hard. Excellent. What great examples. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing these with us, Dr. Holly George, also my friend Holly. Yay, Mary! (laughs) (laughs) The co-editor of Utah Historical Quarterly and senior state historian at the Utah Division of State History. Everybody go check them out. Learn more about our past here in Utah. Coming up next, talking with Ellis Ivory of This is the Place Heritage Park about finding a place in person to connect with history. This hour, KSL celebrates the stories of Utah's lesser-known pioneers in 175 years of progress. Here's Mary Richards on KSL News Radio. This hour, we've been discussing some of these new or maybe lesser-known stories of pioneers and Utah's heritage. What better place to learn more about Utah's shared heritage than this is the place Heritage Park? Again, I want to read this quote that I started with in the beginning of the program from President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. On July 22nd at This is the Place Heritage Park, he said, When you start thinking about pioneers and start connecting it to who they really were, this is a very important thing we're doing. In my judgment, I don't think we'll ever stop talking about those who blazed the trail and made it easier for us. I'm joined by Ellis Ivory, the executive director of This is the Place Heritage Park. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we saw you all over the news on that exciting day in July with the new monument that was dedicated at This is the Place. I think that is just one example of what we hope always people think about when they think of This is the Place, and that is to think that this is the park for everyone. 
So let's talk about the park. For those who don't know, this is the Place Heritage Park. Talk more about what they can find there. Well, first of all, it all began with a single marker. For 70 years, people in the valley here all knew that the pioneers came down Immigration Canyon. And then finally, in 1915, there was a decision to make to put a marker there. And that marker, interestingly, was a cross. And that cross said, this is the place, Brigham Young, 1847. Well, that was the only marker there until 1921. They thought that isn't really adequate. And so they built this small uh, obelisk. And that obelisk is still there. And that's the very spot that uh, B.H. Roberts was told by Wilford Woodruff was the spot where Brigham Young got up out of Wilford Woodruff's carriage and said, this is the right place. But he also added, move on. Because Brigham Young was a developer, which I relate to. Don't start your city up on a steep hill. And he went down in the valley and began to build the city. Yeah, he saw it out all laid. I've pointed out that marker to my children. We love This Is Place Heritage Park, a little bit of a <laughs> shout out for the park. My five children love it. And when we ride the train, you can see yeah. it there. That's right. Yeah. Well, and of course, when people come to the park, it is our hope that they have a good time and enjoy things such as panning for gold and other things that feature the uh, the history. But also we want them to learn about history and to learn about and to just feel the importance of this spot because it wasn't just the beginning of the uh, the Mormon kingdom here. It was also the opening of the West. Exactly. And that is very important to represent. Talk about that connection in place to a, a physical connection, seeing people walking around in that period gear, walking into one of the stores or or the schoolhouse. My children love to walk in and think and imagine themselves learning as those children did in those tiny desks in yep. one room. There's so many different experiences by physically being in the place that you connect with history. Yeah, especially going into some of the small cabins that people lived in and would raise five or six children in a cabin that isn't as big as this room. That was just part of the the story, but they all had a vision, too, that they were going to build something great. We have this one beautiful painting in our new Pioneer Center, and it shows the pioneers entering the valley and looking out across the what was the desert and then seeing in the sky just the vision that there would be a temple, a tabernacle. Even the Hotel Utah is pictured in this beautiful large painting that people see when they first come into the park. Yeah, the Pioneer Center, you said. Yep. Also in the Pioneer Center, some uh, modern technology. We hope to use all of technology to tell the story of the old. And here you see beautiful LED screens that show the trek and show all kinds of uh, interesting things about the history. There are so many facets. For those who are listening who have not been to This is the Place Heritage Park, talk about some of those features there. Well, one thing we did years ago when we built our big garden place uh, event center, we had a row of monuments to each of the religions that came in the 1800s. A lot of people think that it was just the Mormons who pioneered out here, but there were nine other religions that came in at that time. And so I went to each of the ministers and uh, the rabbi to talk to them about that whole era and told them what we were going to do. And they said, well, we'd like to participate. We don't have money to do that. But we said, well, we've got good funders that'll help it. So they created their own piece of that. And it does uh, honor those 
other religions that came in seeking for the same thing, which is freedom and opportunity. You know, and I think that this is something that any Utahn would appreciate because it blazed the trail for who we are today and where we are today. Exactly. And I think uh, the very founding of, of Utah, it was important to have all these different kinds of people who came, and that made the uh, the whole thing of inclusion, which we may have lost somewhat during the interim period, but I think now it is the attempt of all people here that we can be inclusive and uh, set an example for the rest of the country. Yes. I see that message being exemplified and emphasized by leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. There should be freedom for all, no belief or any belief, to be able to share that space together. And particularly President Ballard, who his whole life has been that way. The uh, leadership of the church has often, first it was uh, President Hinckley, but then President Ballard was the one who has always championed the idea that we have and, and has been on all the committees representing the uh, centennial of statehood, the sesquicentennial, all of these important things. You've always found Russell Ballard right in the middle of it. Exactly. You know, we mentioned Martha Hughes Cannon this hour. Let our listeners know more about the Martha Hughes Cannon show. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting one. It's held in the uh, Deseret Hospital that, that is a replica of the first hospital in Western America. And inside that, there are several little displays put around including a copy of the statue that is going to be in the Capitol. And that is all very timely today because it is, again, among all her other great uh, contributions to the state, it's important to remember she was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing because that when we say the park not only is for everyone, but it should represent everyone. Yes. And that's even has to do with our recent monument to the uh, black folks who came in with Brigham Young. Yes, it, we're representing everyone who came and yep. everyone who was a part of our history and our heritage. Exactly. And the park also has seasonal events as well. Many listeners might be very familiar or love or need to get to still the Chris Kindle Market. That's true. And leading up to that, we have, of course, Little Haunts, mm-hmm. which we used to have a very scary evening event, and some people miss that. But for multiple reasons, we don't do that anymore. But that Little Haunts is a beautiful event on Saturdays leading up to Halloween all through October when families come and their little children, there's treats for them and they still go through the park, but they wearing costumes and looking at each other in their cute costumes. So it's a wonderful day. And that leads us into Chris Kindle Mart, which is just right after Thanksgiving, the first part of December, when we have the wonderful celebration of uh, St. Martin's Day and everything that Chris Kindlemart represents, where this year we will have 120 vendors that have signed up and had to, unfortunately, turn away many. But this is a big event attended by literally thousands who come up to enjoy the park and to buy a few things. (laughs) I can't help but do that myself. And then after that is the Candlelight Christmas. Candlelight Christmas has been a favorite for years. It's sort of like a Norman Rockwell Christmas when you go up with the carolers. And uh, that is a beautiful event just in the evenings. And that starts right after Chris Kendall on around the, what, 5th or so of uh, December and goes up until Christmas. And uh, that's a great family event. So we have all these special events through the year, but really it's open every day. Every day but Christmas and New Year's, <laughs> but literally 363 days of the year, 
because often people come from out of town and they just happen to be here on those days and they want to hear the story of how did all this begin and that's why we are open that way and uh, people can always come and see the good things and have a good time. Yeah. You talked about that story of how we began. And in this past hour, we've been discussing some of those names, maybe forgotten, maybe not as emphasized. And you can see their names, learn more about them at This is the Place Heritage Park. Absolutely. And uh, and learn about them in a way that is both interesting and hopefully memorable, such as the Pioneer Children's Memorial uh, walking down the stream and seeing there the sculptures that represent uh, uh, the rocky ridge crossing the Sweetwater and then just feeling the spirit of what it was really like for those people when they made the trek. So tell me a little bit more also while we have you about why you are so interested in this. <laughs> well, I guess my history goes back to uh, the very beginning because before Molly Bonner, I know, has told about the uh, experience with the black pioneers coming in two days before Brigham Young, those three who camped down on 17th South and 5th East. Well, fortunately, my great-grandfather was in that group as well. Matthew Ivory camped there that night, and his name is carved in the stones down on that little monument. And uh, I like to call that the first ivory home in the valley (laughs) (laughs) because he had a great – he had a lot to do with getting the thing started too. And uh, so I felt that. I I didn't feel it nearly as much until I got the wonderful opportunity to come up and serve at the park. But uh, I've been there now for 16 years, and uh, it's just one of the great enjoyments of my life and glad that this uh, came along. Speaking of enjoyment, I've so enjoyed spending this time with you to talk about This is the Place Heritage Park and connecting in that physical place to our heritage and to our history. So well, thank and you. I've enjoyed being here and invite all to come and have a good time and learn more about their wonderful history. Thank you so much. Ellis Ivory, the executive director of This is the Place Heritage Park. And thank you to all of you for listening this hour as we've talked about 175 years of progress, discovering new stories of Utah's pioneers. I'm Mary Richards from the Church News. Glad to be back here on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.